optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Laird Superfood. I love this company. I love their products. I just got a huge box delivered yesterday for a re-up because I always keep it in stock. And many of you have asked me about intermittent fasting, so I'll touch on that in a second. Founded by big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, I mean, really one of the kings of big wave surfing, and volleyball champion Gabby Reese, Laird Superfood promises to deliver high-impact fuel to help you get through your busiest days. And I can speak from experience, having worked out with both Laird and Gabby. These are people you want to emulate. They're just incredible physical specimens, and their combination of performance and longevity is unlike perhaps anything I've ever seen elsewhere. Laird Superfood offers a line of plant-based products designed to optimize your daily rituals from sunrise to sunset. My favorite two products that I put in just about everything are their turmeric superfood creamer and the unsweetened superfood creamer. And a $10 bag of either of these will last you a really long time. So the bang for the buck is incredible. Both can really optimize your daily coffee or tea ritual. I really put them in any warm beverage that I make for myself. And that's where the intermittent fasting comes in. So if I'm going to skip meals, I really like to use some of either the unsweetened or the turmeric superfood creamer. They are packed with, among other things, a full range of MCTs, that's medium-chain triglycerides, to help keep you and your brain going from a.m. to p.m. So that's part one. They're also packed with real ingredients like organic extra virgin coconut oil, coconut milk, and aquamin, and they come in all sorts of flavors, including cacao and, as I mentioned, turmeric. You just have to stir them. You don't really need any instrument for that. You can just do it with a spoon. You could power froth if you have a little frother or blend otherwise into your cup of coffee. For instance, for a nourishing and energizing superfood latte, you can feel good about using to kickstart your day. It's also, for me, an affordable indulgence, right? Because black coffee, I love black coffee, but after having a thousand cups of black coffee at home, I just want a change. And so to feel like I'm having a decadent cappuccino of sorts, plus brain fuel on top of that really can make the difference in winning the morning for me. So Laird Superfood, they understand that food is fuel and the better fuel you have, the harder and further you can go. This is an easy and inexpensive way to really add some octane to your mornings and amplify your daily rituals. They have a diverse product line, including superfood creamers, as I mentioned, uh, the two that are my favorite, turmeric and unsweetened, delicious hydration solutions, and much more. For a limited time, Laird Superfood is offering you guys, my listeners, 20% off of your order when you use code TIM at checkout. Check out LairdSuperfood.com. That's L-A-I-R-D. LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim to see my favorite products and learn more. Again, that's LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim and use code Tim for 20% off of your order. One more time, take a look. I use this stuff all the time and I recommend trying it out. LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim, promo code Tim. This episode is brought to you by Five Bullet Friday. 
my very own email newsletter. It's become one of the most popular email newsletters in the world with millions of subscribers, and it's super, super simple. It does not clog up your inbox. Every Friday, I send out five bullet points, super short, of the coolest things I've found that week, which sometimes includes apps, books, documentaries, supplements, gadgets, new self-experiments, hacks, tricks, and all sorts of weird stuff that I dig up from around the world. You guys, podcast listeners and book readers, have asked me for something short and action-packed for a very long time, because after all, the podcast, the books, they can be quite long. And that's why I created Five Bullet Friday. It's become one of my favorite things I do every week. It's free. It's always going to be free. And you can learn more at tim.blog forward slash Friday. That's tim.blog forward slash Friday. I get asked a lot how I meet guests for the podcast, some of the most amazing people I've ever interacted with. And little known fact, I've met probably 25% of them because they first subscribed to Five Bullet Friday. So you'll be in good company. It's a lot of fun. Five Bullet Friday is only available if you subscribe via email. I do not publish the content on the blog or anywhere else. Also, if I'm doing small in-person meetups, offering early access to startups, beta testing, special deals, or anything else that's very limited, I share it first with Five Bullet Friday subscribers. So check it out, tim.blog forward slash Friday. If you listen to this podcast, it's very likely that you'd dig it a lot. And you can, of course, easily subscribe anytime. So easy peasy. Again, that's tim.blog forward slash Friday. And thanks for checking it out. If the spirit moves you. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello. 
Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it's my job to interview people who are the best at what they do, or certainly world-class performers. And my guest today is Sydney native. We're going to talk about Sydney. Jim Jeffries. <laughs> Jim is one of the most popular and respected comedians of his generation, entertaining audiences, including yours truly, around the globe with his provocative, belief-challenging, and thought-provoking comedy. I would underscore the thought-provoking. He created and starred in the sitcom Legit in the Comedy Central late-night show, The Jim Jeffries Show. Jim was honored as Stand-Up Comedian of the Year at the Just for Last Festival in summer 2019. At the end of 2019, he embarked on his new tour, Oblivious, touring all around Europe and North America. He is currently working with NBC on a multi-camera pilot, which he will star in from writer-producer Suzanne Martin, Sean Hayes, and Todd Milliner's Hazy Mills and Universal TV. His new podcast, I Don't Know About That, debuts on Tuesday, May 5th. You should check it out. And his ninth, count them nine, that's incredible, stand-up special will be released later this year on Netflix. You can find him on all the socials at Jim Jeffries. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-I-E-S and jimjeffries.com. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Is it Tim Farris? It's a very good Australian name. I'm sure you get that a lot, right? <laughs> I do. I do, I, actually. I, I, and you know, like the guitarist from NXS, you obviously know that, that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I, do get- I, have, a, I have a Tim Farris story. Let's hear it. <laughs> I, have, I, I was performing at the Enmore Theatre in, in um, Sydney, and Tim Farris came backstage at my gig and I was like, I was a kid from Australia, very excited to meet the guitarist from NXS and I think he wrote most of the songs as well, you know. And, um, and when, I, when I saw him, he just had like his finger had fallen off. Like it had been like, I think it was a boating accident or something. His finger had been ripped off and I was like, wow. So he goes, yeah, that's the end of NXS. I can't really play guitar anymore because I can't, you know, play the chords because I don't have this finger anymore. And I went, that's a shame. And so, you know, I said to him, I said, so it turns out your finger was more vital than Michael Hutchins because, you know, <laughs> in excess, I think had three new singers and they kept going, but you lose Tim Farris's finger and they can't play anymore. Well, that is the first separate Tim Ferriss anecdote that has ever happened in 400 plus episodes. So I'm thrilled. You know, I've, I've had that name pop up before the comparison, but I've never heard an actual story. So that's, he's, he's a very, he's a very nice man. It was the Farris brothers. They all went to the, the, there was my school and then there was the school next to us and we had a rivalry with them and our school was like, ah, we beat you in rugby. And they're like, we, we we had in excess. And we were like, ah, you win. Yeah. That's a, (laughs) that's a, like like the most famous person to come from my school, I think is me. You know what I mean? Like like we haven't got a great track record. So hello to all the people at St. Ives High in Sydney that's where I went but uh, yeah we had me I think a couple of people who got like bronze in the Olympics and some relief pitcher for the Angels back in the 90s well let's let's talk about Sydney I have actually spent a fair amount of time there I rented an apartment with a friend in Woolloomooloo and uh, wow that's that's a bit of money it's where the Prime Minister lives (laughs) well you know it was uh, it was it was his idea although I will tell you the drawback and you can probably tell me what these birds are. You have the most beautiful white birds that make the most god awful sounds. Oh, imaginable. Australian women! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Australian. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're talking about. Good looking, but the accent's fucking horrendous. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've met them in me day. Oh, yeah, I'm enjoying that. Keep doing it. Oh, yeah, that feels good. Yeah, no, no, the worst worst accent for sex in the world is the Australian female. Um, but what bird are you talking about? There's some protected bird. I want to say maybe it's a macaw. It's this white bird. It has this plume on its head, and it sounds oh, it's a, like- Oh, it's, it's, it's a galah. That's a, oh, no, a cockatoo, cockatoo. Cockatoo, uh, yes. Yeah, a cockatoo. Okay, I'll tell you, my father has- Okay, my father's like he's like this guy that he's at one with animals for whatever reason, and he has this like a veranda. He opens up the doors, and each day these two rainbow lorikeets come and visit my father, and they fly in the window and they just sit on his shoulders. Now cockatoos look very exotic here in America, but they're everywhere in Australia. They're not endangered at all. They're all my dad thinks they're a pest, right? And he goes, "There's a cockatoo that bothers those two rainbow lorikeets." So my father keeps a slingshot and some rocks by the side of his chair <laughs> and he shoots the cockatoos and they come over and and my friend my American friend who co-hosts my podcast with me Forrest was there and he goes he goes does it kill him he goes oh no it just gives him a bit of a scare you know if it hit, if it hit one of them in the eye you know why were you in Sydney for so long were you just uh, backpacking or I was there because my one of my best friends is actually a Kiwi, uh, was living in Sydney at the time, and he invited me to head over. And separately, the Australian edition of my first book was launching in Sydney, and right. they wanted me to show up for a handful of media gigs and this, that, and the other thing. And so I combined everything together and stayed for two, two and a half weeks. It probably only took me two, two and a half minutes to get my pale scalp annihilated by your yeah, ozone-free sun. It's yeah, people, people don't know that. There's two holes in the ozone layer, and one's over, I think, I think the North the north Pole, I think, or it might be the South, and the other hole's over Australia. And Australia, when, when you watch like um, – okay, so when you watch the weather here in America, it'll go, and the temperature's going to be this, the humidity's going to be this, and there's some winds coming in from over here. But you never get the, the, the daily UV rating. We're in Australia and they go, and it's 100% UV today. And it's like 100% is like normal thing. So it's like, it's like you don't even really think about skin cancer that much in America. Like you know it happens and you have to be wary of it. And if you have a mole, you get it checked and that type of stuff. But skin cancer, if it's not number one, it's very close to the number one cancer in Australia. And so we had a slogan when I was a kid called slip, slop, slap. And it was slip on a shirt, slap on sunscreen and slap on a hat. And that's how you, what you have to do if you want to go outdoors. And now the kids today in Australia, if you're at school, they have a policy called no hat, no play. You can't go out of the classroom if you're not wearing a hat. And the hat will have like one of those things down the back. Yeah. So it covers your neck as well. It's, it's a good look. <laughs> well, if you go to Bondi, maybe not Bondi, I'm not sure where the best surfing beaches are. But if you go to some of these beaches, I was astonished because I saw all the surfers look like they were getting ready for an Antarctic expedition. I mean, they had the ear flaps, the neck flaps, they yeah. had enough zinc on their face to, to make them look like snowmen. Uh, oh, yeah, we I, always I, had like fluorescent zinc on our noses as kids in the 80s, and now they still just put the white stuff. But that was how you sort of showed how uh, uh, your personality, whether you had pink or green or fluoro yellow or whatever like that. But it, I like to look at like Bondi Beach and just watch the British people who have never seen sun just like, and you know they've been there for a week going, go on there, lay out. Enjoy yourself. They're all just getting burnt the fuck. Yeah, that's what I, that's, we, I love watching the British get burnt in Australia. 
Well, I, I suppose Bondi, if I remember correctly, because my, my friend used to be a lifeguard, actually, and he was saying you could just sit at a cafe and you could watch, I suppose on one hand, the Brits just get turned into rotisserie chicken, and yeah. then you could see tourists from, uh, he said in particular from China, just get swept out to sea because they weren't the, the prepared for the currents. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 mind you, when I was a kid, that happened to me a few times when you swim out a bit far and then you start drifting off and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm going to die. I did that <laughs> thing where I waved and then like someone has to come out the little boat and come and get you and you're like, sorry about that, I, I swam a bit far. You know, so I, to this day, I don't go far out in the ocean, you know. When did you feel confident in comedy as your direction? Actually, before we get to that, I'll, let's bookmark that question. I just want to say something before I forget sure. and uh, not to get all sentimental this early <laughs> on our first date, but I owe you a debt of gratitude because your comedy has helped me get through some really dark periods. And that might oh, sound funny because you. your comedy itself can be dark at points. But putting that aside, uh, I've I've really enjoyed your comedy over the years, and it's been uh, not just entertaining, but really helpful to me at points. So thank you for that. Oh, no problem. That's a very sweet thing of you to say. And uh, so to comedy and direction, when did you, when did you feel uh, confident that that was your... I wanted to be a comedian from the age of about 13, 14, you know, um, and then I... I I did it two times, three times when I was 17 and one time I did it and it went really well and the and it was the comedy store in Sydney and I, you have to go down there and they put your name in a hat and they pull your name out and I had five minutes and it was just all about being in school or whatever. I can't even remember what I talked about. And um, uh, then they said, oh, you're not 18, are you? And I was like, no. And they go, you have to come back with a parent. And so I hadn't told my parents and my parents as well. I hadn't even told them that I went into the city. Like I wasn't allowed to go into the city. You know, I lived out in the suburbs and I told them I went to a mate's house or something. So I traveled into the city. And um, uh, so so next time me dad had to come with me. And I remember it was like bucketing down with rain. And I went out there and I got back on. And the only other people in the audience, because it was raining, were the other comedians waiting to go on. And there was the the <laughs> full range of people who were getting good at it, people who were, who were never going to get good at it, and people who were their first go, and people have been trying for years. And anyway, I got up. I couldn't have had a worse gig. I couldn't have died worse than that. And I, I got in the car with me dad afterwards, and me dad said, uh, he goes, oh, you're a good kid and you've got a lot of good qualities, but uh, but this isn't for you. And <laughs> I, I, my heart sank. And I, I, then I went and did it one more time just to see, because that first time went so well. And then I did it again and I died again. And I went, all right, this isn't for me. And then I didn't go up again until I was 20. 20. I didn't do it. Yeah, I waited another three years. I, I used to think it was more than that, but I, I was in college and I used to run my own comedy night. And I remember there was a, there was, a, there was a, I was in Perth when I started doing that. So a lot of people think I'm from Perth because of this, because I really started doing comedy in Perth. But um, I, I, the, I, I, the, the way that a lot of people get stage time is what you do is you find a venue, you put your own shows on, you book your own comedians, and that way you can MC and you can get better by, you know, because I, I couldn't get gigs, so I thought I'd run my own gig. And there was, <laughs> there was this area in Perth called Claremont, and Claremont um had a a serial killer 
at the time. The clam, <laughs> had, the, had, the clam, had the Claremont killer, right? So what happened? I don't think they ever caught him. I don't know. but it, oh, Maybe they did catch him. I don't know. But when I was there, the, the guy called the, the Claremont killer. And what happened was with the Claremont killer, all the, all the bars that were normally, this was a big party area of Perth, they were all, no one was going out because all the girls who got killed, the last thing that happened for them, they left the nightclub and got into a taxi or went looking for a taxi and then they were never seen again. So that, that nightlife there just died. So there was all these like bars that were just empty. And so I went into one like, oh, can I have a gig? You know, like that. And they were just happy to have anyone in the building. And I used to get like 15 people, me mates to come along to these shows. And it was like a really popular bar. But on a Friday night, I, I could have a gig there because of the killer. So, you know, silver lining <laughs> to what happened there. <laughs> and when you, if we go back to 17, you tried it three times. Maybe this isn't for me. What in your head was plan B or um, the alternative? Well, there's a weird thing that sort of, I think there's a, you know, for people who really know about me, and it's not many people, but there's there's a bit of a, a myth about me being an opera singer, um, which is, is vaguely true, right? What happened was when I was 17, I was in a school musical, and then I was doing all right. And then someone said, oh, you should get some singing lessons and blah, blah, blah. And so I got some singing lessons with this guy called Richard Gill, who has since passed. And he was one of the main conductors for the Sydney Opera. And he, he, um, he, got, me, he, he got me a part in the chorus of, uh, of uh, Wagner's The Flying Dutchman. And I had to sing in German. I was like 17 and I just sang. I just, I just bought a CD of this, this opera and I just mimicked it, you know. And I, I, I wasn't that great a singer, but after that I, 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 um, I got into uh, WAPO, which is the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and I studied musical theatre and then I studied opera in the next year. And so, so I, I was a professional opera singer for a few weeks of my life, but it was never, <laughs> it was never a full blown thing. But I, I did this course. It was the same course that Hugh Jackman did. And it was oh, like, okay. a, it was a full scholarship ride. And I remember because I, I didn't have the marks in school to get into anything academic in university. And I, I don't believe I had the marks to actually get into this course, but they never checked my, for my high school certificate. And I just um, went in and did a dance and singing audition and stuff. And I always still wanted to be a comic, but because I thought the comedy wouldn't work out, I, I still wanted to be an entertainer and a performer. So I thought, oh, this is another thing I can do. And it was also, I think for my mother at that stage, that was something that she was far happier to brag about that I was studying music in a prestigious college or something like that. But on maybe my second year into the course, there was a comedian called Gary Who, who was like uh, this guy who'd been on Australian TV. I'm still, I still know Gary to this day. He's a very nice man. And uh, he'd come over to do a gig in Perth and I was his opening act and we had, we had a few drinks afterwards. We got along. I think he liked me more as a person than he liked me as a comic. But he said, he said do you want to come and do these, these uh, mining town gigs? And I thought, I thought, ah. Oh, that's too good an opportunity. So I quit university and I went out to like places like Kalgoorlie and these little gold mining towns and I performed in these bars just to like Australian cowboys pretty much, like guys in cowboy hats that live out in the land and they work in the mines and all that type of stuff. These towns had so many men working out there and so few women that in the bars in these towns, 
the bartender would be a female and they'd, be, and they'd ship them in and they'd call them skimpies and a skimpy and she would just be topless. Now, <laughs> the, the, but the, this wasn't, this wasn't um, a strip bar. This was just a normal bar. All the bars have topless bartenders in all these um, little country towns. And the reason for that is if you take away the topless girl behind the bar, it's a gay bar. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just, it's just men. So, so they had to go. No, no, no. We're not gay because they all dress like cowboys. Just all this thing. No, we're not gay. There's a pair of tits over there, so we're all right, you know. And so I did these gigs, and I thought, and I had, I hadn't told my parents that I'd quit university. I thought. You know, I thought I'll just keep doing this until I can be a full-time comic. And then I think it's basically the storyline of the movie Punchline that uh, Tom Hanks' character who said, uh, he said, oh, no, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. And then he, he said he'd tell his parents once he's a professional comic. But then I, I just quit uni. I went back to Sydney to my parents and said, oh, I'm going to give stand-up comedy a go. And then I think I moved to England Oh, I moved to England then. Um, I know the day I moved to England because um, I was packing my suitcase and at about 10 o'clock at night and I was all excited. It was going to be my first time traveling overseas. I'd never been – oh, no, tell a lie. I'd been to America once when I was 14. But it was my first time traveling overseas by myself without family members, yeah? And I was going on my big adventure by myself. I was getting on a plane and uh, – and uh, I was packing me bags, and the and the twin towers fell down, and that's when I that's how I <laughs> that's how yeah. I can remember the date that I left for Britain the next day. Yeah. yeah. Now you leaving to Britain, I had read trying to do homework for this conversation that sure. you'd commented somewhere that there were lots of funny comics in Australia, some people funnier than you, but you had more ambition than some of them and you ended up going to the UK. You ended up then going well, to the US. Is that is that a misquote? I mean, you can't believe everything you read I, on I the think, internet. I, th I think that that's, um, that's true, but it, it maybe more ambition is the wrong way to say it. I think I was in a place in my life where I was young enough and had less connections that I could get up and do that, you know? I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have kids, you know, and, and I started pretty early in life at, at comedy and a lot of people don't start till, you know, they're 30 or they're late 20s or whatever like that and then they have roots, you know, and I didn't have anything holding me back. So there were comics in Australia who were better than me and um, but I feel like maybe they couldn't get up and go. But also... Also, when I say ambition, it's it, there's a difficult thing with Australian comedy because doing live work in Australia is very difficult because you don't have the population to sell tickets. People watch comedy in Australia, but they only go out and see the big acts when they come to town. So the comedy clubs, for the most part, are empty. And Melbourne has one comedy club. Sydney, I think, has two. Uh, Perth has one. This isn't an, enough to sustain an industry, you know, a ground roots industry anyway. And so everybody's... Everybody's sort of like when you've made in Australia, you're the breakfast radio guy. If you can get that job, and that job in Australia pays really, really well. And so everyone's trying to get those jobs. So I think a lot of people who were good comics maybe had, because no one was really full time, maybe had a good day job. I didn't have a good day job. I was earning, I was selling mobile phones during the day. 
when I was a comic in Australia. So I fucking wasn't worried about leaving that at all. That was, <laughs> I, was, I was one of the worst employees a company had ever had and I worked for a place called Strathfield Car Radios and I was just, if there was a way to get out of working, I, I had found it. There was stairwells that I hid under and I did things <laughs> – I did things that seemed like they to get out of work that were more work than actually doing work, you know. If if I, I had to sell I had to sell car stereos and mobile phones. And it, it was, you know, I still to this day, if I was to sell a car stereo, I wouldn't know, I don't know how much amplifiers you need to run a subwoofer. And I sold them for years. And I have no idea. Well, I was at college, I worked for this guy. And I used to just point at things and guess and go, oh, that, look at the size of it and go, that'd do it. You know, I couldn't. I, one, one, time, one time I totaled a guy's white van, like just totaled it, just in, in a stereo fitting, which is very. I, what happened was this guy, this white van driver, a guy that, you know, works, a plumber or whatever the fuck he was, you know, and he came in. And he goes, oh, I want some speakers and a CD player. And I was like, all right. And I, I knew which were the good CD players. I got him like a Sony CD player. And I said, oh, this has enough amps in it that you can run some 6 by 9 speakers. And I go, you just put them in the back here. That's a good size speaker, a 6 by 9 and that'll be good. And then, and then he goes, oh, I can only get it today. And the, the, all the fitters were full. And so I said, uh, I, I went down. There was a 16-year-old apprentice. <laughs> working down there and I said mate this is an easy job just just put the stereo in there and then I don't know how to fucking do it I said and you run the wires along this door panel down here and then just whack those speakers in the side there just into the side wall and that'll work <laughs> right now you're meant to take the panels off cut the holes in put the speakers in put the panels back on but this young fella just got the saw out and he, uh, he just started cutting and it got a bit stiff. Anyway, he cut out one of the support beams <laughs> that support, support, the, support the roof of the car and the, and the, 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 the roof of the car just, just slanted down, you know, about 45 degrees, just sunk into the thing. And this guy came back to get his car and I just went, I go, well, the good news is the stereo sounds great. Ah, and then just <laughs> having to, I was never felt more terrified in my life than having to walk this bloke down just to show him that we demolished his car in about an hour and a half. So what I was, happened? I was, well, it, we, the company had insurance for such occasions. I'm sure, I, 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 I'm sure we just bought him a new van. There was no way to fix it. You can't put a new support. It's not a panel beating job. We, we basically cut the roof off his car, you know, so I assume he got a new van out of it. So he probably did pretty good, you know. I, there, there, was, there was a couple of things like that. I saw, I saw a bloke get knocked out uh, changing over. Uh, uh, I saw a guy, they, they had the new BMWs and the European cars had different coloured wires and stuff like that, and he was trying to test the fucking the, the, the land and the positive and the negative and the earth and all that type of stuff. And he's got his test out and he's, he's laying in the front seat of the car and he touched the wrong wire and it was the wire for the airbag and the airbag exploded into his head and he was knocked out and there was just fucking white <laughs> dust in a bag. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, look, I'm not saying anything that's too bad. That company's gone bust now. They don't exist anymore, so they can't get angry at me for saying anything, probably because of fucking me. How did you make the decision to go to the UK? 
Uh, why mm. the UK as opposed to somewhere else? Is that is that a, a well, usual the, the, kind of lily pad for a lot of promising talent for, for, from Australia? Well, uh, uh, the UK has more comedy clubs per capita than anywhere in the in the world, far beating America, and also it's just a great place to do comedy because it's so compact. And you know, I remember I before I moved here to America, I used to bitch and moan about, oh, I got to drive to Manchester, two hundred mile drive. You know what I mean? And I used to like, oh, better get a hotel room and stay the night and all that type of stuff. In America, I'm on planes and flying and driving. You know, there's an old saying that um, that Americans think 100 years is old and British people think 100 miles is far, right? <laughs> and I think that sort of sums it up, right? And and uh, But also, if you're under 27 and you're from the Commonwealth, and the people from Canada can do this as well, you can get, and I think it's one year now, but back then you can get a two-year work visa where you're allowed to go out and work. Now, you're only meant to do menial jobs. You're meant to be bartenders and whatever. You're not allowed to further your career, you know. So if you walk into any bar in London, it's filled with Australian and New Zealand bartenders, you know. And um, so I had to do comedy on the sly, cash in hand, until till one of the management companies would give me a work permit. But I, I never became a British citizen or anything. I stayed there for 10 years and my visas would only ever last until my gigs ran out. No one booked you more than three months in advance. So every three months I went into a panic like, all right, I guess it's all over now. This is the end of the career. You're going back to Australia. And then I got another one and then I got another one. And I just kept on staying. I, I had a girlfriend there for a bit that I thought I'd marry and thank fuck that didn't work out. You know, I look back on it now, but uh, she's a nice enough girl, but that, that never happened. And um, I, uh, yeah, I just kept going. And so what would happen is in, you, there was very few American comics in Britain. Um, I feel like it's different now. I feel like the world in, of comedy is a lot more close. It was, it was much more segregated where everyone was, you know. But all the Canadians and Australians and uh, New Zealanders all hung out together and we all lived in these houses with like eight comics. And it was good. It was probably, I would argue, the happiest time in my life. I think that would be the happy. And I was broke as fuck, but... You know, the, the, the rise is always better than the peak, man. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So what was it about the rise that you think or well, just that situation that contributed to feeling, feeling happy during that period of time? Well, it was, it was the optimism and also, also you were in it with a group of, you know, people who you all started out with and you were all supporting each other. And, it, you know, the, the, the British scene in my mind, is less competitive than the American scene. And I attribute that to, in America, you play a comedy club and the comedy clubs decide who's getting paid what. And so there's a real, you're worth this much, you're worth this much, you're worth this much, right? And so you'll have a headliner who might be being paid $10,000 for that show and you'll have a support act who's literally getting 40 bucks. And that's wow. still going on, right? And so there is a little bit of like when you're the person earning the 10000 like, oh, don't worry, guys, I'll, I'll get the drinks. You know what I mean? Like there's, a, <laughs> there's, there's a bit of that. But you go down to, I, I don't know what it is now, but you go down to the comedy store in London in the, in the early 2000s, 200 pounds a gig for everybody. And you might do two shows there a night, 200 pounds, we'll say like 300 American bucks or, or there, thereabouts, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was a good income that you could live off. And, you know, each comic was getting the same price. So you didn't feel like, well, why are they getting this? And I'm not getting this. And if you got famous, 
You got out of the comedy clubs and you went and did theatres. You never were famous and in comedy clubs. Oh, you know, yeah. and so over they never the comedy clubs might just have your name written out the front, but they don't have posters around the club going next week David Spade, next week Kevin Nealand or whatever. You know what I mean? They don't have that. So people just went to comedy because they wanted to go see comedy, and and the club might have a reputation for having the best acts or what have you, and another club might be have a reputation for having worse acts or maybe they pay less or whatever, you know. But so so the fact that no one was sort of getting paid more than anybody else and we were all sort of in the same boat, it didn't breed jealousy or competitiveness like it does over here. And also in America there seems to be, Britain there's so few TV opportunities. You know, you might get on a panel show or something like that, but comics getting offered sitcom deals isn't really a thing. You know, because there's not that many sitcoms. There's just not enough channels to do that, you know. And in America, it's like, that guy got a development doing what? Where the fuck did this person get it, you know? So that, I think, breeds uh, more jealousy and maybe less kindred spirits Mm. than the British one. I think I still have more friends in comedy in the UK than I do in England, in, in America. But I can't kind of say that when I moved to America, I was already sort of established and I was older and I sort of just keep to myself, to be honest. I, I, I like, uh, I like uh, when I'm not doing comedy to just not think about comedy. And when I was younger, all I did was think about comedy and what do I do? Mm. Jokes, 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 jokes. And now I just sort of try not to watch anybody and, and try to keep to myself and, <laughs> <laughs> and try, try to be a good dad and all that type of stuff. And I think that just comes with age. When did you first feel in, uh, say, the UK – that you were successful and that that's relative, right? So it could have been a small win. It could have been a big win, but when did you feel, holy shit, like I think I'm on my way. This could be a thing. Well, there's several different stages to that. Now the, the first stage is I didn't have a day job anymore. So I stopped working in the bars and I, you know, I was working in pubs and stuff when I first got there. I stopped working in bars and then comedy was my full time job. And that was, that was maybe the best feeling I've had of anything ever. I think that was the best one. Was when that this is my job, and you you got to when you got to the airport and you had to write down occupation in the form, and I got to write stand up <laughs> comedian. That yeah. that felt. I still I still fucking get a little buzz out of doing that, man. I still stand up comedian, and um, then you know the next sort of step. What happened was in Britain, in my opinion, if you weren't doing the Edinburgh Festival, you weren't really trying, you know? And the Edinburgh Festival, unlike Montreal or what have you or or some of the other ones around the world where you're invited to these festivals, you're not invited to Edinburgh. You just decide if you want to do it. And then you go up there and do it. And if people show up, well, that's good for you, but it's it's a real litmus test on whether people like you or not. Because you went from being in the clubs to you're, you're getting reviewed by 15 or 20 publications. Now, some of these publications are just pissy little student rags that are around for the three weeks of the festival. And some of them are the Scotsman and the Telegraph and big, you know, independent and proper newspapers. And so you'd go up to Edinburgh. And so I did one Edinburgh festival and in a 50 seater and I saw, I averaged 30 tickets a night and I thought that's pretty good. And then the next year I went up and I, I had a 120 seater and I sold that out. And then, and then, and then afterwards, so then I, that my management put me into um, little 
community centres around the UK to just do solo shows, you know, and uh, little 200-seat community theatres in these small little villages, little towns and villages in between the towns, you know. Uh, what happened was, so I was about to my first tour and then, you know, 2006 and I, I got punched in the head and this is before things went viral or, or this is before really YouTube is what YouTube was. And then this thing was on everywhere, me getting punched in the head. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned because, Manchester earlier. It was a Manchester yeah, yeah, comedy Ma- store, right? It was a Manchester comedy store. And so this little tour I was meant to be doing sold out. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, a lot of people go, oh, that was lucky. But it was, but you, you still have to be able to back it up, <clears throat> you know, because a lot of opportunities happen to a lot of people. It's whether, you, whether you're ready to pounce on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, was, that was sort of... A, a bigger moment, you know, and then going off every time you got to a new festival and, you know, I remember, I remember feeling really big the first time someone paid for an aeroplane ticket for me. I thought that's something yeah. I'm traveling. And I went and did some gigs in Asia and then I went to Montreal and, and I was like, and it was just sitting in an economy, but I remember thinking, fuck, and I'm seeing the world for free. And that seemed like a big deal to me because my, when growing up, my parents, my parents saw the world and they, you know, for two years they traveled and I was always sort of envious of that and thought, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never, you know. And then when I got to do it and stay in nice hotels and that type of stuff, that felt like a real, real achievement, you know. And then everything since then hasn't really felt like anything, to be honest. Nothing, oh. American success or anything's just sort of felt like, I, now I'm of the opinion that it'll all go away one day. It'll all end or it won't be what it is now, or it, and, and you got to be happy without it. You know, if you're not happy with it, you won't be happy without it. So that's why I'm saying the rise was better than the thing. Now it's like, oh, all right, when's this going to end? <laughs> and then, but when 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 you when you're younger, you're like the sky's the limit. And now it's like, yeah. oh, I don't need to go up any higher. Oh, I've seen enough. I've seen enough of the sky. Um, <laughs> What keeps you going these days, right? I, I would agree that the sort of chasing the summit is in yeah. a lot of ways more fun than getting up there and being like, Jesus Christ, okay, now what? Well, na- now it's more about, less about success and more about making good work, you know? Doing, like, like it's, also, it's also things now, it's like, so I'm doing a multicam sitcom now if you asked me even a year ago if I'd ever do a multicam sitcom, I'd think no one would ever put me in a multicam sitcom. And then when I got asked, it, some, of, some of the fan base were calling me a sellout and all that type of stuff because I'm doing a multicam. And it's like, you know what? Fuck you, man. It's like I, I watched Seinfeld. I watched Friends. I watched Cheers. I watch all these things. I love those shows. There's a rumor about these shows that, oh, but they have a laugh track. They don't have a laugh track. It's a fucking studio audience. People are actually laughing. That's real yeah. laughter, you know, it's, but it seemed to be a bit cheap or something. But, you know, I, I, um, I think now is, is uh, challenging myself is, is what you want to do, you know. So I'm not a good actor. Sometimes I, I get better at it the more I do it, you know what I mean? I'd like to get good at acting. I think that would be a thing that would be – you know, I would never have the audacity to call myself an actor. I, I say stand-up comedian slash actor, and I always think I should take that bit off the actor bit. 
<laughs> that's not a real thing. But yeah, because I, I, I know I know real actors. I've I've got some friends who are proper actors, and uh, they're a complete class difference from what I can do. Every, every every job, like in legit, I played myself. You know, I'm going to play myself in this sitcom. It's like. It's like I'm not really an actor as such as someone who just reads the lines as myself. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about – you mentioned getting better at acting. Let, let's talk about comedy for a second and flashback to Edinburgh. So for people right. who want a picture, Edinburgh is this extremely picturesque town – you oh, it's a beautiful city. It's beautiful. beautiful. City. You've got the, the the coffee shops where J.K. Rowling wrote the uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You've oh, got, I didn't know that. Is she from is she from Edinburgh? There you go. Uh, she wrote she wrote a, a number of the books there. I think at the yeah. Elephant Room, and then like beautiful fudge kind of looks like Hogwarts. You can see all these buildings. Yeah. Uh, what happens just since I don't know anything about the festival? If it's not invite only, what happens if too many comics show up, or is it just so intimidating that that doesn't happen? And do you just kind of walk into town like a with a a stick and a satchel over your shoulder? There, and- there, there's there's just unlimited rooms. There's just unlimited. They they go to the university. They use every single classroom. They'll find any like they'll find a closet and go. This is a four seat room. There's there, there, half of these rooms are complete and utter fire hazards. They shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> like and and it's and it's in the middle of summer and people are sweltering. There's people fainting in your audience and stuff like that. And then there's the the biggest rooms a thousand seats, which is McEwen Hall. But then they do things like they put tents up. So there's a lot of like there's a lot of um, sort of uh, park areas and they just whack tents up everywhere and people perform in these tents. And what what happens is the these venues will start operating at nine in the morning and they'll be running at four in the morning, right? Wow. And, and each, each hour you, you know, is, is someone's act. And so you know when, like, my first show, I got like a 11 o'clock p.m. spot, which isn't a great spot. You want that sort of six to nine sort of area. And then, like, as you get more popular, they go, oh, you've got the eight o'clock spot. And you're like, ooh, the eight o'clock spot. You know what I mean? So that, like, I heard something, 2,000 shows – are up at the festival That's too, and incredible. it's not just it's not just stand up comedy. Stand up comedy, for whatever reason, is the bit that people uh, it's known for. But it's an arts festival, so there's a lot of like there's a lot of cool things. Like during the day, there's a lot of shows that you can see that you can take your kids to something, some puppetry or or some type of clowning type thing. Or, or a lot of stand up comics who are more family friendly, they might do their adult show at night and they'll do a kid show during the day. You know, which is a cool thing. And uh, I look, I never could. I was always hung over and sleep until 5 p.m. And then I'd crawl out and do my show. I used to gain like 20 pounds at that festival, you know, and then <laughs> work it all. Just beer weight, just horrible fat, you know. Anyway, but uh, uh, it's, it's for me, it's a, it's a magical place. It, it, more than any other festival because it was just – it was just everybody up there was creative and, and it was people that wanted to do their things and people com- – comics were, were, were experimenting. They, they couldn't do in comedy clubs. There was things that I was doing that I, I did a, I did a story that was uh, 30, 40 minutes long, um, 40 minutes long about taking my friend with muscular dystrophy to a brothel. And the, the thing about that is I'd never done a set – in a comedy club that was more than 20 minutes. So I, 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 I couldn't have done that routine if not for the Edinburgh Festival, even mm. if I wanted to, you know. Um, there was – but the thing is, I think the average loss is 5,000 pounds. It's your own money 
And the, the promoters are making money and there's posters everywhere, right? And then you got to pay for the posters. Then you got to pay for people to fly for you all day or you got to fly for yourself. And so if you break even on that festival, if you come out like going, yeah, zero, that's you really crushed it. You really crushed it. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a gamble. But the thing is you get reviewers, you get media. There's, so there's things like, what's her name? Um, Fleabag. Um, you know, Ooh, the know. Phoebe, Phoebe Waller, Phoebe Waller. She just wrote the last James Bond movie. And oh, she had a TV, she, she, she won an Emmy know. for, she won I'm an Emmy for, yeah, she won an Emmy for a TV show, Fleabag. Okay, got uh, it. I'll try to find her. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, like her show. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Is that the Phoebe, one? Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, right? So her show was just a show at the Edinburgh Festival that some BBC executives saw and went, right, make it into a TV show. And then all of a sudden, you, you got a TV show, then she's got American TV, and now she's fucking writing James Bond. And that magic doesn't happen out of a comedy club. It just doesn't, wow. you know. And so, so you know, like the Edinburgh Festival gave us Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, you know, they, they won one of the first awards and all these great sketch groups that, you know, I don't think Monty Python ever did it, but maybe they did. I don't know. Well, let's I'm, talk a huge, about- I'm a huge <laughs> Python guy. You are. What's yeah, your- I had I had John Cleese came over to my house for dinner and I was just fanboying out the whole time and it was the fucking best, man. It was the best. <laughs> I'm friends with his daughter and they were going to come and see one of my shows. They were going to come and see one of my shows and then because of, this is the early stages of quarantine before everyone was quarantined but we were cancelling live things. It was like the first week and so my show was cancelled and he was going to come and I said, oh, we'll just come over for dinner. And then I just was like, fucking John Cleese is in my house, man. That was, <laughs> that was one of the great thrills of my life. If for people who don't have, and this is true, I think, of a lot of younger people who might be listening to this from the US, if they don't have exposure to Monty Python, where would you suggest they start? Well, <clears throat> it's very easy at the moment because uh, I think Netflix has all of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Netflix has all of it. I think the easiest the most palatable thing to, okay, so the best movie is The Life of Brian, but maybe if you just want to have something that's like easy, palatable, and I think they think it's their worst film, I'd watch The Meaning of Life first because it's small small sketches and it's easy to watch. I'm not a big Holy Grail or Jabberwocky fan. I, I I like Life of Brian, but The Flying Circus Show is as good as anything and all of those are on Netflix and they're ready to watch. You know, all the sketches are good. They're all good. It's just like the the classic ones like the Dead Parrot and all that type of stuff, they're not even the best ones. They're just the most easy to quote, I think. Yeah. They're not even the best ones. Well, well, let's talk about your brothel visit with your friend with muscular dystrophy. Sure. All right, so Edinburgh Festival – it's a big opp- it's a big it's a big opportunity. How do you work on that material? Like what did you do to get that ready? That's a big uh, set. Yeah. Well, that that routine pretty much has the story. There's the, the, you have stories that are partly true and stories that you embellish and stories that you add on things and you know, but that story is very very close to 100% true. Very close. And um what happened there was I had my friend, his brother, wanted to get a blowjob. Uh, we sorted it out. <laughs> and then, and then you know, the story happened. And then I remember when that happened, I was actually at the Melbourne, Melbourne Comedy Festival, which I've only done once. 
I went into the bar, the comedian's bar in Melbourne, and I literally walked in. I saw a couple of friends of mine, and I said, have I got a story for you? And I remember I started telling it. By the time I was halfway through the story, there was maybe 11 people standing around in this bar, and people were saying, turn the music down. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I was talking about this brothel visit, and I remember thinking, wow, this is keeping comedians' attention, you know. And I think I probably – I probably told that story um, to uh, like in pubs and to friends for about a year, and before it, but just became a, just a standard bit of a, a comedy for me. And then from that, the TV show legit is from you know the TV my TV my at an FX TV show which was completely based on that story, and it was a one off. That was just the pilot episode was taking someone to a brothel like with muscular dystrophy to a brothel, and then. We, when we did the show afterwards, we did another 26 episodes and the thing that was weird was then you have a character with muscular dystrophy that you have to write into each episode. And I thought, oh, God, I only really need this guy for one. But then that became that became the sweetness of the show. That became the sweet thing. But but it was hard. Sometimes you'd write a funny scene or something funny would happen in your life and you'd think, oh, i got to put that in the show. And then you go, and I have to work in a guy in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, and, and I apologize, I'm not a comic, so I don't even know the proper vocabulary. We have, I, I sure. think we, we have some mutual friends like uh, Whitney Cummings and uh, Brian Callen and these guys who will have much more pointed questions. But for lack of a better way to ask, how do you workshop some of your more, uh, I was going to say intricate, but just longer pieces, for instance, and, we, and I know you get asked about this all the time, but if if we look at the gun control or gun related mm -hmm. pieces that you've done. I mean, those are like long theatrical pieces. Well, I, the, the gun, the gun, I have an interesting story on how I wrote gun control. Let's hear that, it. That, that, that routine, that's, that's probably, I, I think that probably is the routine I'm most proud about. I think it's the most sort of thought provoking or original or whatever thing that I, I did was that gun control routine that I think is most memorable. Um, and sadly, the routine always gets new legs after there's a shooting or something like that. So it's not the way you want to get known, you know. But um, that routine now, – now, I have to stipulate when I say this, okay, with Americans, I understand that many of you like guns and I'm not anti you. I don't think you're wrong. I, I, well, I do think you're wrong. <laughs> but, but I grew up in a society without guns and I have had a different life experience from you. Um, and so this is just my point of view. It doesn't mean that my point of view is right and your point of view is wrong. It's just this is this is my way of thinking on the matter. Um, so I have a guy, and I'm happy to call this man a friend, um, who does not agree with me in any way. And this guy is a more Republican than I'm. I'm more moderate. I think people think I'm a big lefty, but I'm a bit more moderate than I think people would realize. But And it's John Ratzenberg from Cheers. No, no kidding. Uh, Cliff Cliff Claven from Cheers, and Cliff Claven was on my TV show Legit, and uh, I was I was with him when Sandy Hook happened, and uh, we were on set, and uh, he said to me, "Ah, oh, Jimmy, yeah, if only these teachers had guns, we wouldn't have these problems." 
And I went, you're fucking kidding. You want teachers to have guns? And like And we argued and debated for a few days on this matter. You know, it was never mean or nasty or anything like that. It was just, you know, I couldn't believe that Americans thought this way about guns. I'd already, before that, I already, I always knew you liked guns. But when I heard these arguments and I, I was saying to other people, Do you, I think this guy at work, you wouldn't believe what he said. It's fucking crazy. And then I started finding out that other people who were friends of mine agreed with him as well. And then other and I thought, oh man, maybe I'm not in the minority, but this is a very common belief they all have. And so then you start thinking, maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm whatever. And so I just wanted to give not a scientific or a statistic-based argument on the guns. I just wanted to give a, a my point of view and just looking at it rationally type of argument, you know. So that routine was written through arguments with other people. It was just well conversations with other people. It wasn't written by it wasn't written by me going, oh, and I wonder what the statistic is on this, and I wonder what that is, and, and reading and researching. It was me just arguing with friends until I got all my arguments down and I was like, all right, this is what I'm coming in with, this is what I'm coming in with. And very often, stand-up comedy is just you having a one-sided argument and uh, no one being able to respond, which is a one, which is a wonderful thing. They all respond in the end. They all write something at the end on the internet and try to get you, or they come up to you. But and in that moment on stage, your argument is gospel, and no one can say any different. Doesn't mean doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's right. And as you're having these arguments, are you refining all this in your head, just catching it in a net, or are you, do you have a little black book you pull out of your pocket no, when something I, comes I, up? How do you capture it? I don't write jokes down, and I really should because I lose track of punchlines and stuff like that, and other lines can seep in. You can, you know, you can, you can get. I should write things down, but I never fucking write things down. I do most of me writing. On stage, you, you have a kernel of a thought and you wait till you're doing, doing a gig where you're really cooking and you, the audience really likes you and you think, oh, I can get away with anything right now. And then you do your bit and if it doesn't work, you go straight back into a bit that you, you know really well, it's very solid. And mm. so, so that's how I do it on stage. And a lot of people in LA, they'll invite you to do a gig and they'll say um, – They'll say, uh, hey, come down to my room and try out. It's a good place to try out new stuff. And it's like, are you fucking out of your mind? I'm going to come down, do 10 minutes and try out new stuff I, 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 in LA where someone important might be. <laughs> I, wedge, I, I, wedge, I wedge the joke in, in Kansas in, in my two-hour show in the middle of, you know, when you're doing two hours on stage, I try to work in two new minutes each time, three new minutes, and then that three minutes becomes five minutes, and then at the end of a year, you've got a new show. That's why I always find it weird that you expected to have a new tour written when really these tours are, if you see me a year and a half apart, it'll be a new show. But if you see me, even if it's a different tour and it's a month apart, it's not going to be that much different because everything's just evolving and moving and turning. And then the specials come out, and once the special comes out, you never say those jokes again. Hmm. And, when, and when you try out those new two or three minutes, if it really works or it partially works, do you just make a mental note? Do you go back and watch the video or listen to tape? Yeah, I don't tape them either. I, I, I normally, I'm normally so focused on those two, three minutes that I know that, you know, I, I, know, I know what I'm going to do. Um, but the the two or three minutes, sometimes that works better than 
the stuff that's killer, even though it's not as good a joke, because for whatever reason, the audience can see that you're excited by that joke and they can see the sparkle behind your eye and there's that little bit of magic that happens because you're so excited and and you can't fake that and you can't act excited about a joke you've told a hundred times. You can't. Mm. You can perform it well. You can perform it really well. You can put everything into it and make it great, but you can never have that magic where you're grinning through it because you're like, ah, oh, this is so good. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so so because doing a new bit of stand-up, that's the most enjoyable bit of the whole show for the, for the, for the performer, or at least it is for me. Life of Brian. So let's, let's come back to that, if you don't mind. What is sure. it about Life of Brian that makes it so good in your mind? Well, it's the perfect movie. It, the thing about it is there's plenty of quotable sort of sketches in there and stuff like that. Um, it's mocking religion, which I love, but it's, <laughs> but, it's, but it's also not mocking religion in a direct way. It's like the Christians can get upset and go, this is sacrilege and that type of stuff. No, they, they don't tease Jesus at all. You know what I mean? They have the beginning, the meek, they will inherit this and inherit that, but... They don't really get into Jesus. We're talking about Brian. If you want to say that this is about Jesus, that's your fucking problem. You know, there's a lot of people going around acting like they were the prophets who got crucified back in the day. And uh, if you want to say that we can't talk about them, that seems a bit ridiculous. So it's a lovely little loophole where you can poke fun at people and still, you know, and also that stuff about the what did the Romans ever do for us, the aqueduct, the this, the that. It's just, it's very, very funny. <laughs> Are there any other comics who were really formative for you or people you have uh, formative or people you've looked at and just said to yourself, I don't know how they do what they do, right? Because Uh, I guess those are two kind of two separate things, I suppose. George Carlin, um, when I started watching him, I thought that was that that he was pretty amazing. And I, you know, I, I get a little bit Carlin esque on a, a joke here and there, and I got to watch myself because I, I, I'd love to have been that man. You know, he he seems like the perfect comedian to me. Um, I I would say um, there was a guy called Anthony Morgan as well when I was growing up in Australia who was very influential on me growing up and I don't know what he is does these days and I, I haven't seen him since but um but he he was he was a big deal for me and Eddie Murphy's Delirious was a pivotal moment in my childhood it was the first time I saw someone who wasn't Australian doing stand-up comedy got to understand in Australia we only had four tv channels we had no comedy specials I didn't know Richard Pryor was a comedian I thought he was an actor Right, yeah. we had no stand-up specials. We had no HBO that didn't exist, or we we didn't even have American TV. We didn't have. I couldn't see who was doing well on Carson. That didn't exist. Those clips never got to us. You know, we had our own late night shows with our own comics on them, and you'd see them for a few minutes, and that was all you really saw of them. And then Delirious was the first cinematic release stand-up special. So it was in the video store. And I remember watching it and I couldn't get over that this guy was doing stand-up comedy for an hour. That blew my mind. I thought the stand-up comedy was only in a medium of five minutes. That That's what everyone did. And then you, you couldn't watch someone afterwards. And I remember like I wasn't uh, good looking. I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't anything, you know, that was deemed to be cool, you know, I couldn't play on a guitar, I couldn't, you know, and just to see someone who was doing something that I 
believed I had the innate talent to be able to do, Andy was cool. You know what I mean? I'd never seen yeah. – like because like, comedy before that, before Eddie Murphy for me, I didn't – it was – we're goofy. We're goofy people. And I, I still to this day don't particularly care if – my mother always used to go, they're laugh. those kids at school are laughing at you, not with you. And I, I just didn't care as long as I was getting the laughs because I still knew I was doing it to get laughs. It didn't matter to me where they came from. And so just to see someone who was cool and he was, you know, like, let's be honest, I wear a fucking leather jacket on all my specials because fucking Eddie Murphy wore those leather <laughs> jumpsuits. There's one of my specials, I wear it without a T-shirt. I just wanted to just once, <laughs> once have a leather. And I've never done that in my personal life or anything. Just before I walked out on stage, I went, fuck it, I'm taking the T-shirt off. I'm going to be like Eddie Murphy and just just, just wear a, a leather jacket on bare skin. I fucking, that jacket stinks to this day. <laughs> do you think you'll still be in LA or is, is LA home base for you in 10 years time? LA's home and um, LA's home and I don't believe that uh, you know I got a kid and I, I would like to have another child um, sometimes so I think when you have children I think that's your your moving's done. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I think maybe I could retire in Hawaii or something like that. And depending if my kid fucking goes off and works in New York or whatever, what's the point of me staying in LA? You know, maybe I could go off to Santa Barbara and buy a place and go for fucking walks or whatever the fuck people do <laughs> when they're old. But, you know, you, you could, it could be, you could be in a lot worse places than LA. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. Yeah. Now, I, I really get a bit home proud of LA and I don't like when people bag on it. Yeah. When people just go, oh, LA, oh, you must hate it there. And they're like, oh, the traffic, the traffic. Where I live doesn't have traffic because your place is shit. <laughs> LA's got traffic. LA's got traffic because people want to fucking live here. That's why there's traffic because <laughs> people want to be here. And it's good. And the yeah. food's good and the women are pretty and shit. You know what I mean? Like, why would you? <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, Why yeah, would yeah. you want to fucking the restaurants are nice? Like there's there's places, other places that are, are nice as well, but there's just what my argument is there's nothing wrong with LA. Well, LA is also, I mean, this took me a while to figure out. Uh and uh, obviously there are many people who spent more time there, but I lived in Northern California for almost twenty years and spent a lot of time in Southern California. Is that LA to me strikes me like as if it's a dozen different cities all within the umbrella of LA, right? So you can really kind of pick your pocket depending on where you want to be and the personalities are very different. Yeah, I agree with that as well. It's like it's like when I moved to LA, all I knew of LA was two things. There was the Hollywood, which was the ritzy looking lights and all that type of stuff. And then there was Compton. And they're the only two <laughs> things that I had seen on TV. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I I used to think I used to believe I couldn't walk the streets in LA because a blood or a crip would come and shoot me or something. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there'd be a drive-by or something. It's fucking – or I'd be in Beverly Hills and it would just be girls with long legs with dogs in handbags and I thought that was all there was. And it turns out, it turns out there's also the valley. What do you think uh, – and, uh, and I won't keep you too much longer, but uh, – and we're definitely going to talk about the podcast, but what has helped you to have longevity in comedy? Uh, because not, um, not, not, it I, seems I th like you I have some longevity. Yeah. 
I think it's producing um, a lot of uh, specials. I think bringing out the specials constantly sort of keep you going. The specials never, I never like do a special and then it's like, wow, you're more popular now or anything like that. But it just keeps your fan base going. And I think you gotta, you gotta give, you gotta give a product. You know, you you you've gotta keep touring. You gotta, you know, if you if you you keep your eye off the ball, then I'm not a big believer in that. I'm in competition with anybody else. I just think. If I just keep on producing good quality stuff, I'll, I'll always have a, a fan base, whether it be small or large or whatever, there'll be somebody somewhere that wants to pay to watch me tell jokes, you know. So, But as I said, if if it all ends tomorrow and I I, I, I just become like an old fellow who sits around go, showing my kid pictures like, ah, oh, one time I played the tennis arena in Melbourne, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, th- I think I'm all right with that too. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the secret to being a successful comic is. I, I really couldn't tell you. If I could tell you, I'd go manage comedians and stop doing it myself. <laughs> when you think back to the filling in of the customs form with stand-up comedian and the high that that gave you when you first did it, not that it would be the same magnitude of high, it could be, but like, what what gives you that type of high now or in the last handful of years or what are you hoping to do that would give you that type of um, that type of hit the, the, i think if i was in a dramatic movie that would be something that's something that right now i can't foresee ever happening so that would be one thing that would surprise me if that happened because i've there's that's not on the horizon no one's ever asked or or asked if I'm interested or anything like that. So if that happened, that would be something that would shock me if that happened. And, you know, I don't, I don't suspect it will happen, but if that happened, it would shock me. But, you know, it might sound corny. The the thing I get the most joy out of is probably being a dad. I, I'm, I, I really like being a dad. I, I think, uh, I think um, I'm more proud of, of when I do that well than when I do comedy well. What, what do you, how do you know when you're being a good dad? That's the thing, man. That's the thing. You don't know. You keep, you, you know, it's, 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 I know, I know my son really loves me and that's cool. Yeah, I know that. And then you do things where just little things, you know, you teach some kids to ride a bike and you're like, yeah, I did it. Cause you know, as a parent, I, 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 I don't know how to like, like my son's still having problems doing his shoelaces and I feel like I've let him down a bit there. He's getting a bit old. <laughs> he, he's, he's getting a bit old and he should be able to do it. And I feel like, is hey, he, I dropped the ball. I, I dropped the ball on that one. Is he, like, <laughs> is he 18, 19? I mean, how's he? No, he's, how's he's he? seven. He's seven. Oh, okay. All right. Just checking. <laughs> he's seven, but I, I've read that he should have been able to do it by the time he was six. And he's hopeless at it. You know, he gives it a go. And then I go, but because I keep buying him fucking shoes with Velcro on them, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I feel like that's lazy parenting where I've stuffed up a little bit, you know. But uh, I think, uh, you know, you take them on a good holiday or you, 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 you work hard and you get them into a good school and you do all those type of things. And I feel like, all right, because otherwise what's all this for if you're not going to give the next generation a better life than you had? Yeah. Yeah, thinking about kids for the first time, really for me in the last eighteen months or so. So it's um, I've I have a newfound interest in talking to people who are parents, uh, <laughs> but I don't want to belabor that. I don't want to turn this into a therapy session too quickly. So let's talk about the uh, the new podcast. I don't know sure. about that. Why 
why this show? Why? Well, why? well, I I think, and and no, no offense to you, I think there's enough shows where people are interviewing people. You know yeah, what I mean, I, I, I agree, <laughs> I agree, I agree, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so so, and I, you know, you talk about what there definitely is. There's far too many comedians interviewing comedians. Like it seems like a very weird thing now that we all go on each other's podcasts and we talk about how we get started and how to write a joke and all that type of stuff. And then I, I just sort of, I, I thought like, like the, well, it was like how do things work or the more you know and all those type of podcasts where they talk about stuff. Those are the ones that I sort of was interested in where I was like, I, I started listening to less comedy podcasts and more podcasts where I could learn something. And then those those um, crime ones, everyone likes those so much because they, they have something they learn about. Now, this also goes back to my father is, is a very difficult man to argue with because if you prove him wrong, and like he'll say, oh, this happened, that happened, and you're bloody this and that, and, blah, 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 blah. and then you go, well, Dad, that's not actually true, you know, like because in 1948 the government did blah, 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 blah. You say that, and you give him facts, and then my father just goes, well, I don't know about that. And that's, <laughs> that's not conceding. That's just going, oh, maybe you're right. I doubt it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so... I thought, well, what the podcast is, is what will happen is each podcast will have a specialist on, somebody who knows a lot about a subject, whether they've written a book or they've done a TED talk on it or whatever the fuck, and they'll come on and I won't know who they are or what they do and then they have to say their their, uh, topic of expertise and then I will say everything that I think I know about that thing, right? Because do you remember before the internet, when you had a guy in a bar who you used to think was the smartest person ever and then the internet came out and you could just Google things and it turned out he was completely full of shit, right? <laughs> right. I'm going to be that guy, right? And then at the end, the guy, the person, the specialist will tell me uh, what I got right, what I got wrong, um, what misinformation I had, uh, what is a common uh, bit of misinformation on the thing, and then we'll all learn together about this specialist topics and we'll keep it funny and we'll keep it light and then at the end of the thing you'll know about a topic. I love it. What are some of the topics <laughs> on the, on the um, slate? We've rec- well, see, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, what have you recorded so far? Just to, if you can give people a sort of a preview, or maybe you don't want to. I'm, I, we can uh, go either way. I, I, can, I think I can. Can we name a couple, Alex? Or, yeah, we did. Uh, we did the war on drugs, and we've done earthquakes. We've done like four or five of these, but that's a couple. We did earthquakes and the war on drugs. So, well, I think, <laughs> I'm just and making I, a, and, yeah. and now I know shitloads about earthquakes and the war on drugs. I know a lot of stuff now. But before I, did, I didn't know much. Well, I love the format. I mean, I, I do. I do agree with you. That I think there's a overabundance of interview style formats, and who knows? I may end up looking at the photos, reminiscing on the old days, and I'd be okay with that too. Uh, at some point, if that, if I, if I, <laughs> I, I, if I, you're one of the bigger ones, Tim. I think you'll be just fine. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. But you know, there there might be a time to take old Yeller behind the shed and put him <laughs> put him to rest. Uh, but uh, well, I I love your comedy. I think you're a smart oh, guy. You. It's very very thought provoking. As I mentioned at the very beginning, the new podcast is I don't know about that, which is debuting Tuesday, May fifth. 
And uh, I'm sure people can find more about it on jimjeffries.com. You can be found on Twitter, Instagram, at jimjeffries. Is there anything else you'd like to share or anywhere else that people can? No, uh, man. No, no. On? Just uh, subscribe to the new podcast. I have All my gigs are canceled because <laughs> I have no shows to promote. But uh, hopefully after this quarantine's all over, I'll be coming to a city near you. Thanks for having me, Tim. Oh, my pleasure. And I will, uh, for everybody listening, link to, I don't know about that, link to some of the the episodes we mentioned, the Manchester head-punching incident, a couple (laughs) of the clips and bits, uh, as well as TV shows, everything in the show notes, as usual, at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And uh, Jim, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye. And to everybody listening, until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Layered Superfood. I love this company. I love their products. I just got a huge box delivered yesterday for a re-up, because I always keep it in stock. And many of you have asked me about intermittent fasting, so I'll touch on that in a second. Founded by big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, I mean, really one of the kings of big wave surfing and volleyball champion Gabby Reese, Laird Superfood promises to deliver high-impact fuel to help you get through your busiest days. And I can speak from experience, having worked out with both Laird and Gabby. These are people you want to emulate. They're just incredible physical specimens, and their combination of performance and longevity is unlike perhaps anything I've ever seen elsewhere. Laird Superfood offers a line of plant-based products designed to optimize your daily rituals from sunrise to sunset. My favorite two products that I put in just about everything are their Turmeric Superfood Creamer and the Unsweetened Superfood Creamer. And a $10 bag of either of these will last you a really long time. So the bang for the buck is incredible. Both can really optimize your daily coffee or tea ritual. I really put them in any warm beverage that I make for myself. And that's where the intermittent fasting comes in. So I'm gonna skip meals. I really like to use some of either the unsweetened or the turmeric superfood creamer. They are packed with, among other things, a full range of MCTs, that's medium chain triglycerides, to help keep you and your brain going from AM to PM. So that's part one. They're also packed with real ingredients like organic extra virgin coconut oil, coconut milk, and aquamin, and they come in all sorts of flavors, including cacao and, as I mentioned, turmeric. You just have to stir them. You don't really need any instrument for that. You can just do it with a spoon. You can power froth if you have a little frother or blend otherwise into your cup of coffee. For instance, for a nourishing and energizing superfood latte, you can feel good about using to kickstart your day. It's also, for me, an affordable 
indulgence, right? Because black coffee, I love black coffee, but after having a thousand cups of black coffee at home, I just want a change. And so to feel like I'm having a decadent cappuccino of sorts, plus brain fuel on top of that, really can make the difference in winning the morning for me. So, Laird Superfood. They understand that food is fuel, and the better fuel you have, the harder and further you can go. This is an easy and inexpensive way to really add some octane to your mornings and amplify your daily rituals. They have a diverse product line, including superfood creamers, as I mentioned, uh, the two that are my favorite, turmeric and unsweetened, delicious hydration solutions, and much more. For a limited time, Laird Superfood is offering you guys, my listeners, 20% off of your order when you use code TIM at checkout. Check out LairdSuperfood.com. That's L-A-I-R-D. LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim to see my favorite products and learn more. Again, that's LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim and use code Tim for 20% off of your order. One more time, take a look. I use this stuff all the time and I recommend trying it out. LairdSuperfood.com slash Tim, promo code Tim. 